0: Hello and welcome to Minto Dialogue, episode number 517. My name is Minto Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out our shows on this wonderful network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Judy Piatkus. Judy's a business leader, coach, and author, bringing conscious leadership development to the forefront of entrepreneurship and business. Having founded and successfully sold her eponymous publishing company, in 2011, Judy founded the global non-profit organization Conscious Cafe, which connects people around the world with regular local groups and events that focus on conscious conversations, raising self-awareness and exploring new ideas and current issues. She's also the author of Ahead of Her Time, How a One Woman Startup Became a Global Publishing Brand, which won the Business Journey Award in the 2022 UK Business Book Awards. In this conversation with Judy, we discuss her remarkable career, some of the key lessons learned as a pioneering entrepreneur, building a winning team, and the way her purpose came to her evolved and crystallized through to encouraging conscious conversations. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. and please do go and put in a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Judy Piatkus, how lovely to have you on my show. I, Of course, I, I've, I've come across your name through, first of all, the idea of this Conscious Cafe, and and then your book ahead of her time which um, was a remarkable read. And I really enjoyed it because it was very personable, very personal and uh, and entirely relevant to my old life (laughs) in terms of being a writer. In your own words, Judy, how would you like to describe yourself?
1: That's a good question. I don't think I've had to think about describing myself. And that is such a profound question because I believe that everybody, all of us are, changing every day as we have new experiences and as our consciousness for what is happening around us is slightly changed due to what happens and some days we have growth spurts and other days it feels like not much is happening but then when we process it later we discover quite a lot was happening so i guess if i describe myself i will say that um I aspire to be a deep thinker. I'm not an intellectual thinker, and I try to walk on the earth quite lightly and smile and laugh
0: a lot. Well, that is a distinctly lovely definition. Of course, um, in your book, you you really describe a number of massive changes you had in your life, you, and the journey that you had. You you were you showed great flexibility and also a lot, of, a lot of being ahead. And one of the things that was funny for me was the number of times you referred to these antiquated technologies that we used to have, like the typewriter and the old landline and everything. If you look back at your career at starting Piatkas Publishing and, and the whole journey that you had, how would you describe your attitude that allowed you to get through it?
1: Well, I always think I've been very lucky in this lifetime um, because I've got a fairly even temperament. And we, we we none of us can do can do too much about our temperaments. We have to learn to live with ourselves. Um, but because I have got a fairly even temperament, um it it just enables me to take each day in my stride. And when I was 26, my daughter Sonia was born and Sonia subsequently after about nine months we found she had cerebral palsy and we didn't know how her life would play out and of course we couldn't know how our lives would play out in relation to this new concept of how our family was going to be. Um, As it happened, um, Sonia's abilities to do very much in the world didn't develop that much but having the experience of parenting a child with disabilities was massive in my 20s. Um, The word disabilities wasn't used in the 1980s when Sonia was born and so she was talked about as being handicapped. Uh, there, There wasn't much language for people to use, people who we knew were very uncomfortable discussing our lovely daughter because they didn't know what to say and they were frightened of upsetting us. And of course, that hasn't changed. But now the topic of disability is in the public domain and we're all used to it and we have all developed in how we respond to people who are slightly different from everyone else. I think it's okay to say that. I think of my daughter as being an original. So having this happen, during my 20s has probably shaped who I have become in my later years, because Sonia has had so much to deal with in her life, she's unable to talk or walk or feed herself, and we don't really know what she thinks, she can let us know if she's angry or sad and she's got a great sense of humour, but if she's got a pain it's very hard that she hasn't got the ability to point to the part of her body. So all these things that I had to adjust to as a young mother when I was in my 20s um, impacted on everything that I later achieved in my life.
0: It's funny. In the number of interviews that I talk about where people are, are have Discover the importance or the the power of meaningfulness. Typically, there's some sort of life changing moment, and usually it's sort of a facing death kind of situation or something significant. Clearly, you had this is would I would characterize this as a life changing experience for you. Is that how do you see it? Um, oh, oh, absolutely! It um it, it would
1: be like I mean when parents are looking forward to their children being born and then some months later they discover that their child is going to have challenges that would be life-changing for every parent um, but I have to confess I did have a boyfriend in my teens who always said I was a deep thinker
2: and, mm.
1: and I, I had realized um, that I was quite comfortable not always thinking the same as everybody else and I guess that's how I was able to adjust to becoming an entrepreneur and just get on with building first one company with a partner and then a second company which I started on my own um, because different things had come together to to give me um, the confidence that I needed. And um, and and the experience that I needed to start my small company, um, but I still had so much to learn that I absolutely a didn't I knew, so a there were the things that I knew I didn't know, and b there were the things I had no idea I didn't know. So mm-hmm. I think every entrepreneur has that experience.
0: You so the title of your book is Ahead of Her Time the 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 idea of being a pioneer is is appropriate you were a woman starting a company in a as you describe it distinctly male type of environment and and so you were faced with somewhat being alone in the in the notion of not having role models that you followed how would you describe the the support that was so necessary for you to get through that—how did you tap into the support that you had around you in order to survive?
1: When when I um I started my first company with a partner and um I was very young I was in my early twenties he was working from his parents' house. Um, where he lived. I had just moved into a new flat with my husband. We had got married. And it was all new and lovely. Um, we were very supportive of each other. Um, he had a lot of support from his family. Um, he came from a, cu- a cultured family, uh, for whom books were really important. He knew people in the book trade. And um, we spoke on the telephone and we rarely met and this worked very well for both of us I mean this was years years before mobile phones this was the time of landlines so I have to tell you Mentor, I do still have a landline because I think they're healthier but I know that there's not many of us around Um, so he gave he, we gave each other all the support we needed and we got on very well in our first couple of years but as we built the company and worked together in an office we weren't getting getting on so well. It wasn't so easy. We we were building the company. The company was going through new stages of growth and we didn't always agree with the approach that the other one was taking. So after four and a half years, we separated and I walked away with 50% of the company. Well, rather, I sold the company to him and walked away with 50% of what it was worth. But when I started on my own, I didn't have very much support at home or with friends. Um, Most of my my friends weren't engaged in the commercial world. I knew very few women who were working in the commercial world, except those I met through publishing. Um, My husband at the time was working as a clinical chemist in the local hospital. So I was really very much on my own. But in those days, the society around us was so different. And the word support meant you held something up when it was falling over. It wasn't used in the context of emotional support. So as I, as generally people didn't think about being supportive in the way we do now, I didn't realize that I didn't have the support that other people might have had. Um, my father was managing director of a small building company, but he'd retired. And I think he was quite in awe of the fact that his eldest daughter was doing all this. They, my parents weren't quite sure what to make of me. So, um, I, I, although my father and I should have had a lot to talk about, in fact, we didn't have a very close relationship anyway, and I rarely discussed what I was doing with my parents or with my family and friends. But as I didn't know that I would love to have it, I didn't really miss it.
0: Well, it is somehow a point that in today's world, we we kind of know everything and therefore everything can be labeled. Or if you don't know what you don't know, then you it's sort of foreign. And And, and, it, and if you plow through just because, well, this is what I'm gonna do, it gives you another sense of creativity and, and and maybe some ignorance is bliss in this case.
1: I think what was helpful was that as, um, as I began to gather a great team around me, n- none of us had really held senior positions in organizations. So we therefore were very practical. We didn't have any issues around, well, it's always been done like this. We just thought what's going to work best for us? So um, early in the 80s, my colleagues, several of my colleagues were already working from home and just coming into the office, which by by then we'd moved. We had a house in Loughton and we put a loft extension on. So my colleagues would come into the office, which was in the loft extension, and we had meetings when we needed to. Of course, we didn't have Zoom then. And um, and actually that worked very well for everybody because we were able to organize our lives around our work. And we were all committed to making the company a success because we had this lovely, flexible lifestyle. And um, so yes, when people got pregnant, of course we gave them time off. And subsequently when we had young men working in the office who became fathers, well, of course we gave them time off. We, we didn't have issues about doing new things. I remember several years later, one of my colleagues, um, Simon, our production director, came into, the, came into my office one day and said, well, we're moving to Cambridge. They had been living in North London. And at first I was a little bit shocked and thought, oh, I hope we're not going to lose you. He said, but not to worry, I'll be commuting every day and I'm planning to work from 8 to 4. So once I'd got over that surprise it was quite a surprise in the 80s it worked out well for everybody and um, we had um, a um, very key admin person in the office she would come in and work from 7 to 3 um she Her husband took their little boy to school and she left early to pick him up. And this worked brilliantly for everybody. And everybody knew that the staff or the the culture at the top, if you like, it wasn't very hierarchical, but the culture at the top was flexible. And what I wanted was for everybody to enjoy coming to work because I hadn't been very happy in the first company I developed. I wanted everybody in my company to be happy, and I wanted them to have a good time at work, work work hard, but then go home and have a life, because I think that's what we all want. And um, I have to say email has made that very, very difficult. Um, but yes, I mean, let's have as few rules and regulations as possible, and let's develop a culture of trust. Um, whereby everybody is supportive of one another and feels that the managing team are on their side. So, yeah, we were ahead of our time in those things.
0: It strikes me as listening to you, Judy, that the idea of having a purpose came into being uh, slowly. The idea, you didn't start with some grand purpose, I, I can imagine, other than wanting to be successful, making great books, get sold, and so on. Talk us through how you approached or what you think of this notion of having a purpose for your company.
1: When um, when I started in my first company um, with my business partner, it was because I was still building a career and I'd always liked the idea of working for myself. When I started my second company, I had Sonia and I had another child on the way. And it was very important to me to earn a good living because I knew that we would have a better life as a family if we had some money to spare um, for help for me and for Sonia. As the years developed and we began to publish books in the area of personal development and personal growth and self-help, we Saw there was a market, and we were interested in that in those topics. So as we developed our knowledge of that whole area, we began to think more deeply about our purpose. In the 1990s, it was common for companies to have mission statements. Um, our mission statement as a company was to entertain, to inspire, and to inform. And if you'd asked me what my purpose was, in the 1990s, 20 years, 25 years ago, I would have said my purpose is to publish and sell as many books as I can on behalf of the authors we're working with. But as I grew older and my thinking developed and we got feedback for the pioneering work we were doing, I began to realize that my purpose was to open people's minds to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And now that I'm older and not working in publishing, I can see that I've had the opportunity to do that through a certain amount of speaking, writing, posts online, and bringing people together in my current network, Conscious Cafe, for conscious conversations. And every conscious conversation that any of us have, whether at Conscious Cafe, or at at any time in our lives during the day, any thoughtful, conscious conversation can expand our minds to new ways of thinking. So that's what my purpose is. But it wasn't obvious to me when I was young. So I want to say to everyone listening to this, if you're not sure what your purpose is, don't worry about it. It will become clear as the years go by.
0: And yet I'm thinking that you created this solidarity in your team. And and as my experience, as I've talked to many entrepreneurs as well, this idea of purpose, you can often sort of understand it afterwards but it's not something you start with. You're just trying to make ends meet. You've got to be practical. We're changing offices. We've got a new kid and coming in, and, you know, we've got another author comes in and, and someone's running away, changing. So, so you're just dealing with stuff, like branding, for example, is sort of an afterthought. To what extent do you think that you created a, a unity around maybe a, an implicit purpose at the time when you were starting Piatkas by yourself? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, after a few years, we began to publish business books. We also published popular fiction, as well as personal development, personal growth, and a whole range of nonfiction. And we were in the publishing industry, and the publishing industry is fairly small in terms of numbers, and people know about the different companies. And people who would come to work with us had sometimes worked for larger companies in publishing or they were aspiring to work in publishing. And every now and again, we would sit everybody down and remind them that we were an independent company, that we were financed by the money that we generated ourselves, that we didn't have any outside shareholders or investors, so that it was really important for everyone to play their part because otherwise we wouldn't have enough money to pay them at the end of the month. And really, it was basic. But actually, if you don't learn about business at school, if you don't learn about commerce, and of course, this was the 80s and the 90s when... Um, Actually, business wasn't considered as something people aspired to be involved in. That didn't really happen um, until the internet came along, which was around 2000, shall we say, um, from the point of view of people discovering they could actually become solo entrepreneurs sitting in their homes and make money. So we weren't at that time yet. Um, And the people working at Piatka's Books, when it was an independent company, really appreciated that we were like a little boat sailing on a massive sea, lots of big boats surrounding us, and everybody needed to to sort of help with everything.
0: A little bit like a pirate.
1: Very much. Yeah, definitely. one
0: One of the remarkable things is that, well, I want to get into this movement to nonfiction in a moment, but you 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 really were ahead of the time, as I read it, in the way you worked in a distributed manner, the way you worked with flexibility, the way you worked with freelancers. and 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 even with the the way you approached how your employees can go off and have uh, maternity leave or paternity leave or or what so a lot of things that you did without the need of some regulations, without, or before anyway, they became commonalities. And I, and I think that was really remarkable. One of the things that really struck me um, was this movement from fiction to nonfiction. So first of all, I'd love to hear what you think the role of fiction is in society today.
1: The role of fiction in society. Um, I, I think people, everybody, no matter where they live on the planet, we all love stories. And we want stories. And we want to hear stories, we want to be told stories, some of us create stories. And I think it's the nature of the human being to love storytelling, to love the narrative. And to have the privilege of being able to publish fiction and to have the opportunity um, to launch new authors simply because we loved their voices um, was a great gift to us as a publisher. Um, Fiction will always be important. Not everybody loves reading fiction. Um, Fiction can teach us So much about life and relationships, and it can inspire us to go out and do things we never dreamed of before we read that particular novel. So, yeah, fiction is a great gift, and fiction is very important when times are tough because you really can escape into a novel. Whatever your taste, there will always be a novel that is waiting for you to read.
0: So, excuse me if I'm perhaps uh, generalizing or wrong. But it is my observation that the the novels are typically wider read by women than men. Is that accurate? And if so, why? And if it's not, then tell me wrong.
1: No, I th- I think that I think that I think definitely um, women read more novels than men. And um, one of the interesting things about that is that women will often um, because we were selling to women, we were marketing to women, we were publishing mass market paperbacks. And we knew that if we got the cover right, if we got the title right, if the author sounded someone you wanted to pick up, a woman would pick up that novel, would take it to the cash desk in the shop, remember this was before the internet, and would pay for it. I mean, she had to dig in her purse, she had to think about whether she wanted to spend that seven or eight pounds, that's what it would cost that week, and whether she could afford it. Whereas men like to publish, like to read fiction by people they've heard of. So selling novels to men it was really about building and selling brands. So men would all go out and read the same authors, um, but getting your author to be somebody that a man would recognize and want to pick up and incidentally when a man wants to read a book they just pick it up and take it to the till they never look at the price. So there were different ways of selling books to women and men and I think in our company we were better at selling to women um, because we there were so many women in our company we did have men as well um, but the fiction team was women and uh, and we understood better what they wanted. Um, I don't think I would have been the right publisher for an author like Wilbur Smith who was or I might have picked up Dick Francis but they were the ones who were topping the bestseller list um, in the 80s and 90s Um, and if I mention their names probably many people listening to this will have heard of them but there could have been lots of popular women authors Um, who might have been successful, but they didn't have to have the brand names that men do. Um, So whether that is why women read more novels, um, maybe, I mean, I could start to generalize, but I think without doing a bit more research into the answer to that question, it's probably better not. Maybe women like stories more. Maybe, Maybe men like different kinds of stories and they find them in the pub.
0: Mm. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever
2: you listen to your podcasts.
0: We, we out. Well, I I certainly don't mean to be provocative, but you must be much better placed than I am to to, to riff about that. Um, So this transition from fiction to nonfiction stuck out for me because you talk about it as gaining some form of credibility. It was an important move for you. I would love for you to verbalize how publishing nonfiction changed your aura or at least changed, was it so important for you? Why was it so important for you?
1: Uh, when I started the company, um, I was, as I mentioned before, pregnant with my second child, and I was working all day in my bedroom with my brand new typewriter, um, my biggest investment at the time, and um, and I began to publish fiction because in 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 the earlier part of my career in in the previous company we had bought novels by authors whose books were out of print. And we'd reprinted them for libraries, and we'd also reprinted some earlier works by popular authors, and these sold very well. So that was my background. So when I separated from my uh, business partner, um, we agreed that I couldn't publish anybody he was currently publishing, which seemed fair enough. So I had to go out and find new authors. And people were happy to sell to me because they'd been dealing with me for several years and they knew I was likely to keep my word. If I said I was going to do something, I would do my best to do it. And of course, that's what people want to know when they work with you in the business area. So we began to publish fiction, but when I looked at what everybody else was publishing and you have to look at what your competitors are doing, even if you don't copy them, which of course is not very creative. So when I looked at other companies and thought, who do I want to be and where would I like to focus? Then I realized that I would never be taken that seriously if I only published fiction. But I didn't know a great deal about non-fiction. I wasn't a non-fiction reader. And it took me a while to develop a niche for Piatka's books in the non-fiction market. Um, But I was able to do that within a couple of years because as a mum, by then of three children, I loved baking. And um, one of our first bestsellers was a baking book by an author who was regularly on Thames television in the afternoons. And we approached her to see if she would write a book for us. And in those days, any publisher could approach any author. Well, they still can, but authors were not expecting to receive such huge advances as they do nowadays. And as they came to do in the next 10 years or so, so when we approached Mary Berry and asked her if she would write a book called Fast Cakes, cakes where you just put everything in the mixing bowl um, shoved it in the Magi Mix, which was just coming onto the market and then put it in the oven, really fast cakes. Um, she, was, she loved the idea and was happy to do it. And versions of that book are still in print today.
0: It's brilliant. And... The other thing you you mention um, is that you, by having to read all these books in nonfiction, it was it seemed like it was also your business degree. You were learning the materials from the books and and somehow looking at them as part of how to apply or implement your business differently.
1: We um, began to publish business books at Piakas Books early in the nineteen nineties. And prior to that, most business books were very academic and targeted to people who were doing business courses. But actually, in the 1980s, there weren't very many business courses. Otherwise, I think I would have gone off and uh, studied to gain some kind of diploma or degree, some kind of qualification. I hadn't gone to university and that's still rankled. Um, so... Uh, the first business book we published was a very large size, large format book that came to us from America called The Perfect CV. And it had sample CVs on every page and told you how to write one. And we thought this would be hugely helpful because it's around the early 90s, was, there was a major recession in the UK. And many people were finding themselves without a job, really, for the first time in their lives, um, because it affected white collar workers, um, whereas previous recessions had affected blue collar workers more. And people felt that companies would be loyal to them. And this was a major shock that companies were not being loyal to their employees. So people had to learn new skills. Um, partly to keep their jobs and partly to find new jobs, and we produced um, your perfect CV, so you, which showed you how to set out all the skills you already had in the best way, and then we began to do books for ordinary people about the things that you do in the workplace, dealing with difficult people, managing meetings, getting better at negotiating, public speaking, all those things that are necessary skills in the workplace, which people didn't realize um, they could develop, because there hadn't been a culture of training at that time. So we, we were very Unfortunate. am um, in that we met loads of business authors, read loads of books from America. The Americans were writing a lot of very good business books for this market at that time. And uh, we've gradually found that our own business skills were improving alongside publishing business skills for everybody else.
0: Uh, a lovely, a lovely story. Um, uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about before we talk about The Conscious Café was the across the division or the divide or the the way you brought American literature and writers like Daniel Steele and and other you know I mean what well, what a whopper that must have been but so many other great names as well and you were and you you talk about how you made them English appropriate or British appropriate to be more precise what what does that entail uh, today is that still necessary.
1: When um, when we published novels and um, that we um, bought the right to publish in the UK and various export markets, when we published American novels, we didn't change the language at all. And um, as, as everyone knows, you can sometimes pick up an American novel and the, the terminology, the dialogue, the words are just very, very different. But we didn't change any fiction, but we did sometimes change nonfiction. Um, we would offer um, different resources at the back and um, I think you might be referring to um, one of my favorite books uh, which was called, um, which is called, it's still in print, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom by Dr. Christiane Northrup. And um, this was a book that um, came about because Dr. Christiane Northrup Um, was Oprah Winfrey's gynaecologist, and Oprah Winfrey had a regular program on TV in America, which was also broadcast in the UK, and everybody who Oprah featured, all the guests she interviewed, tended to have um, bestsellers following on their interview, and Christiane Northrup's book was offered to us Um, It was offered to us as a new project, and it was a huge project, 800 pages, and we had to go through that book with a tooth comb because we wanted women in Britain and in the export market to really benefit from this book, but because it was about health and featured aspects of the American health system, we had to change everything so that it was suitable for our own market. So that was a real labor of love. um, But our edition of the book went on to sell 100,000 copies. And it's a wonderful health book for women, telling you all about your body and telling you things about your body that have not really come to your consciousness for the most part. So we were very, very proud of all the work that we put into that. But many other publishers do sometimes alter American books. And now that the books arrive in digital format, it is much easier to adjust the text for different markets.
0: Mm. Well, so uh, I speak about this in some regard because of my personal experience with a number of my books that have been translated into other languages. So not English to American or American to English, (laughs) but into foreign languages, um, such as French or Chinese and Vietnamese. And I, I always marvel at the fact that they all changed the cover, the front cover. A front cover color, the title very different. The, the, the drawings might be, you know, different. And yet all this worry and thought we put into the initial one, I, I always thought, well, hmm, well surely they would have thought that red would be the right color and, and not need to go to blue or, or such.
1: It's what, very what... interesting, isn't it, how different countries have different taste in their creative artwork. Um, and I guess that applies to painters, artists. that a famous painter in one country might have no appeal in another country. But yes, it would be lovely if we could all use the same cover. And so I mean, occasionally we used American covers. And but usually, we um, had to change the um, cover. And one thing that's interesting about American covers is, um, at that time, they tended to be a little bit gimmicky. So the idea would be that the cover, that the title would catch your eye, and you'd pick up the book, and see what it was about, whereas in England, we tended to go for straightforward titles. Um, So when we published an amazing book, um, the first uh, classic book on mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn, in America, it was called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Well, this was the mid-1990s, and nobody knew what mindfulness was. And we didn't really want, we didn't we thought we would struggle in the UK to sell a book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Um, and so we called it Mindfulness for Every Day. So, or maybe it, sorry, Mindfulness Meditation for Every Day. So that gives you an example of the different ways that we use language. So once you're changing the title, then of course you've got to change the cover. However, when the internet came along and we all um work through Amazon, it was much more complicated if you wanted a different title in a different country. Um, but by then, people everywhere um, were, were much more used to um, one book having the same title and often the same cover So when it was online.
0: Right. Um, Judy, from your perspective, if someone's listening and they haven't written a book yet... And there's always this expression, everybody has a book in them, right? What advice would Judy Patkus give to a person thinking, hmm, I'd like to write a book? What? What? Where do you start?
1: Well, first of all, I actually, I do believe everyone has a book in them, but I don't believe that everybody else always wants to read it. Uh, so, I'm not quite as optimistic as you. But if you want to write a book, there is so much information on the internet. There are books, there are writing classes, there are lectures, there is every kind of help and support imaginable. And the most important thing is to start writing. Just sit there and write. And some people like to write longhand, And that's absolutely fine. And some people can write directly onto uh, the computer. Um, But the most important thing is start to write, see how it goes, see how your writing voice, your tone, your narrative is coming out because it's very easy to write something and then realize actually you don't feel entirely happy with what you're saying, what you're writing. There might be another way of doing it or maybe... Something that has arisen when you began to write seems like something you'd rather focus on. Um, But the most important thing is just to get on with it. Find your space. Maybe set aside an hour a day when you will be uninterrupted. Find a quiet place. Um, And just write. See what comes out. Because so often people talk about what they want to write. And really, you're just putting off the day when you sit down and press those keys.
0: Well, because if you say, you know, got to go study all these things and everything, you're never going to get there. I I tend to say two things. I say, first, uh, you must enjoy the process because the chances of you selling more than 10 copies are pretty small if you're a 1st time. I mean, I I jest a little bit, but really provoke the idea that you must love the writing and and just revel in that. And the second is, why do you want to write a book? Well, because my grandfather told me, I, I won't be a man if I didn't, or... Uh, you know, that's, that's what I think is going to make me, my imposter syndrome go away or whatever that why is a critical one to un, un, unearth because there may be are alternative methods than writing a book to getting it. So Judy, I wanted to, um, just finish talking a little bit now about your current path, uh, what you're doing with Conscious Cafe. So tell us how this came about and, and what are you up to with this?
1: I launched Conscious Cafe in 2011 um by then i had sold Piatka's books it um, found a beautiful home um it's part of the hachette group of companies and it was bought by little brown which was a major company within the hachette group the hachette group at that time um, was the largest publishing company in the uk and um, and, I did, and i and I, I was i loved being a publisher and when i stopped being a publisher i realized i had been shouldering a lot of responsibility for a long time and i wanted to play but um, I tried out different things, and I really missed having interesting conversations about the, the areas that I was interested in. And at Piatkus, we would published mind, body and spiritual books, spiritual books, um, as I mentioned before, personal psychology and personal development. And I wanted to meet with people, authors and friends, and just have co- those conversations. I wanted to look at the world in a more conscious way. And so I invited people to my home and we had a conversation the first topic was what is consciousness everybody enjoyed it and after that I began to run events every month so now um, 11 years later actually we're nearly coming up to our 12th anniversary now we have con- we have several conscious cafe groups in the uk um, and people um particularly before lockdown uh, were meeting and having live conversations sometimes they were having speakers and we've also got groups in um Uh, in Geneva, in Switzerland, and in Basel. We have had groups in another couple of countries and we hope to have groups in more places um, soon. Um, And each one is run by a leader who just loves bringing bringing people together and creating the space for inspiring conversations and events. Um, so the conversation about consciousness is carrying on, and I feel really privileged to have met so many fabulous people and had so many interesting conversations, which hopefully have expanded lots of people's minds and they've loved them.
0: Well, I certainly enjoy the idea of expand. I, I I think of the perimeter of my mind and how I can rush up to the end of it and peer over and see what what lies. yonder in in conversations because this is a topic that's dear to me how do you architect conversations that that get into the good stuff if i would maybe preface the idea or the question with the notion that as an adventurer the other day was telling me if there is no risk there is no adventure And a life without adventure is no life for me. So I I say that because if the conversation has no possibility of risk because it's so safe, is is that the way to harbor and continue the conversation? Or how, how do you approach having interesting conversations?
1: It's very much down to the leader of the group or the facilitator. And they are holding the space and by that expression, um, I mean that it's up to them to create a space, an area, a sense of trust and intimacy where people feel that they can speak um, without fear of feeling foolish without being judged. I think that's the most important. We, none of us want to be judged when we speak. We want people just to accept us the way we work, with the way we are. And we want people to listen and we want our voice to be heard. And when the facilitator understands that, takes their time, introduces everybody, um, creates an atmosphere where people are comfortable then a really profound conversation can arise and even if they don't get everything right you can still have a profound conversation although some people might choose to hold back Um, but many of us say it's chatham rules whatever we discuss in this space doesn't go outside this space it isn't shared with anybody and um and we will listen carefully and honor and not judge anybody and many of the people who come have been working on themselves, working on not being judgmental for many years. Um, and so usually the the space that the facilitator or leader is holding is supported by many people who are sitting in that room or on Zoom. Um, so it's it's. Um, It's a a great skill when people feel safe enough to speak out. And when they speak out, the conversation becomes so much more profound. But the topic that you just shared about risk and adventure, I think that's a great topic. I mean, first, you've got to think, what is risk? Um, How am I living my life now? How risky am I being? How do I measure risk? So you'd be thinking all about the aspects of risk before you even got onto the adventure and decided what would be an adventure. So you could definitely stay with that conversation all day.
0: <laughs> I like to provoke some thoughts for sure. In this notion of trust, something you write about uh, quite a lot in, in the book ahead of her time, There's there's a feeling that, If you're not self-confident, you can trust the wrong person. And if you're not self-confident in general, you don't trust yourself. And therefore, what kind of trust do you have with somebody else? How do you approach the idea of creating trust?
1: As a leader in any organization, uh, the first thing is, if you want people to trust you, you have to respect them as an individual. And you have to do what you say you're going to do because everybody is noticing exactly what you're doing when you're the leader. Um, You know, they're watching you, they're paying attention, they're talking about you. Um, And so you have got to be very self-aware and all of us can learn to be self-aware. And as I mentioned before, the tools are out there because the, the thing... That was really special for us at Piatkus was that we were publishing books, and we published books on self-esteem, and we published books on confidence, and we published books on feeling good about yourself, understanding yourself better, and we were publishing those tools. They didn't really exist at that time, and I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s. And of course, even even at the end of the 90s, we published a book called Life Coaching and by a woman called Eileen Mulligan, and hers was the first TV series on the topic. And WH Smith took it on their shelves. They'd never taken a book on life coaching before. So when I say the tools weren't there, the whole of society wasn't really thinking about themselves in that very deep way that we now have the opportunity to do. I mean, if we want to understand ourselves better, we can get ourselves a coach. We can read a book by a coach, we can go to lectures, we can read blogs. I mean, there is so much information. Um, We could go into therapy if we wanted. I mean, um, we can all learn to live the best life that we're capable of, but the tools weren't there to do that 20 or so years ago. And that's what's really different now. So if you have issues around self-esteem and confidence, Even a couple of sessions with a therapist, particularly if you're young, can explain so much to you. Um, And you've got to be aware of it. And you've got to see... And you've got to ask people how they get their confidence and then you've got to think about all the things that you're good at doing and we're all good at doing loads of things and maybe we haven't recognized and acknowledged our own skills and talents and when we've done difficult things and when we've had to be resilient in our lives all those things are things that We can put in our bag of tools knowing that we did those difficult things and that we were capable of them and that we'll be able to do them again. So it's a lifelong process because we all have times when we don't feel confident, when we think other people are doing things so much better, when we fall out with people who we don't want to fall out with. And that's why, to return to the very beginning of this conversation, That's why every day we're having the opportunity to learn something new. So for anyone out there who's not feeling great about themselves, I wanna tell you that we all experience days when we don't feel good about ourselves, but we need to feel good about ourselves most of the time in order to have the best life we're capable of. And there's loads of ways that you can learn to do that if you haven't managed it yet.
0: As I like to say, Judy, it's okay not to, to be okay. And, Absolutely. And, and we all have days when
1: we are not okay.
0: Lovely stuff. So first observation, I love the fact that you cite the names and the authors of books. It's sort of so refreshingly old-fashioned because today it feels that second observation. No one takes the time to read books. No one takes the time to have that self-reflection that you're talking about. And I think that is the the lesson or the gift that you've given in your chat.
1: Ah, thank you. Well, I don't, (laughs) thank you. I think there's loads of people out there who are teaching mindfulness and studying mindfulness. And I do think mindfulness gives you the opportunity to start your journey of taking time to reflect and contemplate. So that's a good place to start. But mindfulness is also about observing your own thoughts. So it's not until you really observe your own thoughts regularly throughout the day and recognize what's going on in your head and what triggers your anxiety is what triggers your rushes of joy. It's not until you do that as a daily practice um, that you get in the habit of reflecting. But all of us can do it, whether you're up, whether you're in the commute to work or whether you're just about to fall asleep.
0: I like to also not just observe my thoughts, but observe my breathing. Judy, thank you so much for coming on. How can someone grab your book? Are you writing another book, by the way? (laughs) Is that one? I want to get a scoop.
1: (laughs) No, no, I'm not writing another one at the moment. I've got an idea. um, But like lots of authors, I'm thinking about it more than putting words on paper. So we'll see what happens there. Um, So I have a website, www.judypiatkas.com. Uh, Conscious Cafe is www.consciouscafe.org. My book is ahead of your time, ahead of her time. well Yes,
0: I was, I was just wait, uh, wait, wait. I was ahead of her time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ahead
1: of her time, and you can um order it from your local bookshop. You can order it via Amazon or other online um, book outlets. You can download it and you can listen to it. So I hope you enjoy it.
0: So just a last thing on the conscious cafe, if someone wants to join them, create one, is that available on the website?
1: Yes, just go to the website. Um, We don't have a membership. Anybody can sign up and we will email you details of our global events, which everybody can come to because they're on Zoom, or you can see if there's a group near you. And if you think you'd like to start a group, um, then email um, info at consciouscafe.org.
0: I will put all of that into the show notes, Judy. Thank Thank you. you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, Including my last one, you lead. How being yourself makes you a better leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, "A Convinced Man."
2: I like to feel of a stranger. I'm a convinced man I'm ready for and around I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman